600 KIVA and 93.7 FM right here in Nikiva. This, of course, is Stefan Helgeson, and we're proud to be with him as he is the author of The 11th Hour. This is Project Pushback Radio. We want you to visit his website, projectpushback.com. Very important. Get that mailer every single day and uh, push back as we have less than... 75 days until the election 2020. Good afternoon, Stephen Helgeson. Good afternoon, and thanks, Eddie. Welcome, everyone, to another Project Pushback Corner Half Hour. I'm your host, Stephen Helgeson, and I am the author of the book, The 11th Hour, How You Can Push Back at the Liberal Left. It's my third book on conservatism and the Republican Party, and my fourth on American politics. In my work life before my retirement, I was a U.S. diplomat for 20 years, I lived and worked in about 30 different countries. I saw four presidents come and go in those years and watched the country switch from Republican to Democrat and then back to Republican again. I knew that after 20 years, it was time to hang up my spurs. So I retired to New Mexico in 2004, thinking I'd kick back and enjoy doing nothing. Well, that didn't last long, and I was asked to manage a Republican candidate's campaign for governor. Unfortunately, the campaign ended shortly after it began, but that gave me a taste of New Mexico politics. Later, I accepted a position in the Richardson administration as the director of the Office of Science and Technology, and that lasted for about four years. I probably could have stayed longer, but the governor found out that I wasn't a card-carrying Democrat and decided to eliminate my position, along with 52 others. For the last 10 years, I've been working hard to get conservatives elected to public office. I managed a Republican candidate's campaign for lieutenant governor and helped an advisor on another, all the while writing articles for the newspapers and doing the occasional radio interview. But last year, I felt I needed to be doing more. So I set up a political action forum at a website called Project Pushback. Project Pushback's aim is to make people aware of what's really going on in our country's politics and to encourage them to push back at the liberal left's talking points. It's not easy in a state where 45% of the registered voters are Democrats and only 30% are Republicans, but we can't give up, especially this year. Every morning before the crack of dawn, I research a number of conservative websites like the American Conservative, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, Town Hall, and others, and I pick out articles that I think will interest my readers. I bundle them together in an email with links to those stories and send that email out free of charge. If you'd like to be put on my mailing list to get it, go to my website, www.projectpushback.com, and send me your contact information. That's all there is to it. Your information's safe with me, and I won't sell it or share it with anyone. If you'd like to cancel at any time, just let me know, and I'll remove your name from the list. No hard feelings whatsoever. All right, let's get down to this week's monologue, which is all about seduction. No, not the romantic or the sexual kind, but about how the media is working to turn our heads. There are many offenders in the media rogues gallery, but one of the principal ones just happens to be America's radio station. You got it. It's National Public Radio, or NPR. Last week, I wrote a piece called NPR, Puppet Master or Puppet. It started out with an admission and a question. 
The admission was that I am a regular listener to the local NPR affiliate KUNM, which broadcasts from the University of New Mexico. I occasionally tune in to KANW as well. After hearing their programs for, as the British say, donkey's years, I've come to some conclusions. But there are still questions that plague me, such as, is national public radio dancing to its own tune, or is it marching to the tune of others when it comes to their ultra-liberal bias? I still can't be absolutely certain, even after years of listening to their programs like All Things Considered, which has 14.7 million daily listeners, or Morning Edition, which boasts 13.1 million daily listeners. These two programs dominate NPR's programming, while there is a myriad of other independently produced shows that NPR either co-finances or buys from outside producers. One of those is 1A, a decidedly left-of-center oriented program that routinely bashes our current president. Their principals managed to appraise Obama for years, however. Just three weeks ago, 1A's bias was clearly showing. Mr. Sean Donovan, who was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Barack Obama, was interviewed by Jen White of the D.C. Bureau. During that interview, Donovan accused President Trump of, quote, racist policies, close quote, because his administration had canceled the AFFH, or Affirmative Furthering Fair Housing Regulations that were imposed by the Obama administration. Donovan wasn't challenged by White even after repeated assertions of Trump's obvious racism. In other words, he was given free reign to slander the president without once being asked how he could prove his allegation that the president is a racist. To compound the one-sidedness of NPR's interviewing, Jen White also switched back and forth with another anti-Trump guest, Ms. Karen Lacey, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Lacey accused the president of wanting to, quote, bring back the days of discrimination, close quote. Then, for the denouement, White talked with Emily Badger, a reporter for the New York Times, who also made it clear that she agreed with the aforementioned guests. The program was ideologically lopsided, something NPR is famous for, at least in the eyes of this conservative. This begs the question, is NPR the puppet master, pulling the strings of its own self-generated left-leaning culture, or is it manipulated by outside forces? The answer is probably a mix of both. Though polling of NPR's journalists is difficult, we can look at more generic national polls of journalists working for traditional media to see that the prevailing political thought is clearly left of center. The political self-identification numbers among journalists reveal that only 7% of them leaned Republican. That's from a Washington Post article in May 6, 2014. And it doesn't take a leap of faith to believe that that number is even higher today, given the extreme animus for Donald Trump. Counterspin is another program that loves to bash the president. On Tuesday of this week, the program featured an anti-Trump guest, civil rights attorney Liz Uyang, who railed against the president for shortening the time for the census to complete its work and for wanting to include a question 
that dared to ask if any non-citizens were living in America's households. Then the host, Janine Jackson, went on a tear and chimed in with a characterization of the administration's policies as racist and nativist. Was there a rebuttal guest? Not a chance. This is NPR's modus operandi. Show one side and one side only. NPR likes to portray itself as a warm and fuzzy, objective news reporting operation. But it is not. It is, in fact, a media wolf in sheep's clothing. To be sure, it has its share of smooth talkers like Scott Simon and Steve Inskeep and more moderate-sounding hosts and reporters. But it also has its attack dog journalists like Ailsa Chang, who has no problem in going for her guests' jugular, especially if those guests are from the right wing of the political spectrum. Its program hosts attempt to feign compassion and sincerity. They rarely raise their voices. Instead, they let their carefully couched questions do the talking for them. You know the kind I mean. Those that presuppose or assume the accuracy of a given situation, like, tell me, Mr. Jones, when did you actually stop beating your wife? There is a definite ideological hierarchy or pyramid that starts with top management and it filters down, as if by osmosis to NPR's producers who decide to implement NPR's overarching leftist views. They are fully aware that most of NPR's donors and supporters do not want any form of equal time standard to be applied to their programming, so producers don't worry about it too much. They practice a sophisticated form of cover your ass, or CYA, by attempting at the 11th hour to contact the potential victims of their broadcasts for their opinions, or invite them on the programs. However, given past experience, many conservatives wouldn't touch those invitations with a 10-foot pole, full well knowing they'd be assaulted by those same beat-your-wife questions. So, the NPR line becomes, we reached out to X, but they didn't return our calls. There are many examples of this on both a local and national level, and anyone who listens regularly, regularly to NPR or its local affiliates can attest to that fact. So is this biased coverage the result of highly developed puppet mastery, or is NPR being played? I would argue that it's the former. The network has an agenda, and it is one of preferential journalism that devotes an inordinate amount of airtime to America's minorities, over-reporting on issues, or rather, not, not reporting on issues that affect all Americans. That's right. It trains its spotlight on those issues that affect minorities first, and as such specializes in tail-wagging the dog, politically biased journalism. NPR has its own culture. It is pro-abortion, anti-gun, pro-Black Lives Matter, pro-alternative sexual lifestyles, pro-big government, anti-traditional energy, pro-selective free speech, pro-open borders, pro-illegal immigration, and, of course, anti-Donald Trump 
anti-Republicans, and anti-conservatives. Can I prove these statements with facts? No, not with statistics, I'm afraid. But my empirical evidence gleaned from thousands of hours of listening to NPR's programs clearly point to their support for a strong cancel culture bias. I'll leave you with this tidbit of news that I heard on last week's Morning Edition. It's an interview conducted by Noel King with Miss Julie B., who is a music therapist. Who even knew there was such a thing? And with one half of the musical duo, Ants on a Log. She and her partner, Anya Rose, have curated, which is a fancy way of saying produced, an album of, quote, transgender and non-binary music, close quote, for children. After catching most of the oh-so-simpatico interview with the composer, I decided to listen to the entire seven minutes online at NPR's website. Afterwards, I became even more convinced that NPR has once again lived up to its own internal, though not publicly acknowledged, orthodoxy, that America's minorities, like those of the transgender community, which comprise 0.6% of the population, according to the Williams Institute survey of 2016, have more rights to our nationally funded airwaves than the rest of us. Now, don't get me wrong. I have no objection with finding and reporting on interesting news stories, but I do object to being spoon-fed the New Age palaver and propaganda that masquerades as news. Well, let's step back just a bit. NPR was incorporated in 1970 by an act of Congress during a time of enormous civil unrest. To hear NPR tell it, quote, we're not a radio station. It's a common misconception that NPR is a radio station. But in fact, we are a supplier of programming to public radio stations that have joined NPR as members. We produce and distribute programming to more than 550 member stations nationwide via satellite. It's those stations that actually broadcast NPR programs to the listener. Each member station designs its own format, combining local programming with offerings from NPR and other sources to serve its particular listening audience. Close quote. NPR's first big foray into reporting was its live coverage of the Senate Vietnam hearings in April of 1971. Later, it scored a hit with its new program, All Things Considered, which went from strength to strength until reaching a daily audience of over 14 million listeners. Before you think that NPR is just another government-type entity or something bureaucratic, bureaucratically sclerotic, think again. It's a business, albeit a non-profit business media organization, but a business nonetheless with an agenda that goes beyond mere survival. Its programming philosophy is rooted in a left-of-center ideology. It hasn't always been smooth sailing for NPR, though. In 1999, it got crossways with its affiliates when it decided to charge them based on their audience base rather than operating expenses. This new funding mechanism served to strengthen NPR corporate's coffers but it weakened its affiliates' bottom lines. It's not NPR's abuse of my tax money 
that angers me most. It's the combination of that and an unabashed cancel culture propaganda that they are now even pushing at our children through their programming and the subtle ways they insert newspeak and counterculture bias into everything they do. One typical example is their use of alternative pronouns. I'm willing to bet that most of you out there don't know that KUNM management allows all of its staffers to choose which personal pronouns they want used when describing themselves. One morning host on KUNM calls himself they, even though he's only one person. NPR's unfailing support for the so-called disadvantaged victims of the evil white majority elite has got to stop. We must demand that rebuttal guests with countering views be allowed on air to participate in a format akin to the point-counterpoint segments that were part of the old 60 Minutes show. Failing to push back at the re-engineering, or as NPR would probably call it, the reimagining of American culture by our publicly funded entities will inevitably lead to more of the same, and I believe an eventual destruction of our shared values. While we must always make room for and be tolerant of those who fall outside of our cultural norms, we must also not allow minoritarianism to dictate the way America's majority lives its lives. And that, my friends, is the real bottom line. We could talk about the media's abuse of its power all day long, but there is precious little we can do about private companies that exercise their editorial authority. They are free to go as far off the reservation as they want. Even social media has wide latitude to shut down and censor their subscribers' speech at will. Oh, sure, we can complain. But at the end of the day, companies like Twitter and Facebook are islands of journalistic and editorial independence. NPR is another story. Unless we want to end up as the sequel to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, we will need to make our voices heard with Congress and the FCC and vigorously push back against NPR's daily attempts to remake America into a minoritarian state. Well, I wouldn't exactly call my comments about NPR a rant, but I'm sure the left would, just as they would call any criticism of their sacred cows an attack. But so be it. We have to grow a thicker skin if we're going to discuss and solve problems like media overreach or media bias. And that goes for just about everything we're discussing these days. On a totally other subject, I watched the opening salvos of the Democratic National Convention these past few days, and I must say that I was underwhelmed. I guess I never thought that politics could be so boring. If I were to characterize the Democrats' strategy, I'd have to say that it was one that bordered on passive-aggressive behavior. For those of us that haven't experienced passive-aggressive persons, examples of this behavior include avoiding direct or clear communication, evading problems, fear of intimacy or competition, making excuses, blaming others, obstructionism, playing the victim, feigning compliance with requests, sarcasm, backhanded compliments, and hiding anger. 
To me, that describes the Democrats to a T. And I'm sure we'll hear much more of the same in the weeks to come as the Joe and Cammy show goes on the road. We'll be regaled with Joe's singular and time-tested ability to bring us together. Something Joe has never done. And something that no one can do today in our ultra-polarized political climate. Cammy will remind us that she has a rolling pin tucked underneath her apron that she's only too happy to bring out as the occasion warrants it. We'll be told that only the Democrats can save us from the coronavirus, rampant Republican racism, gender inequality, an impending depression, an all-out attack on women's reproductive rights, a failing educational system, and a bankrupt foreign policy that has made us the bully on the international stage. We're sure to hear echoes of Michelle Obama's impassioned words at her Dem Day One speech to get out there and vote for hope from all the horrible change we've seen these past four years. And don't forget, when we the Republicans go low by reminding voters of the facts, she and the Democrats will go high by putting us all in touch with our feelings. Spare me more of the Obama platitudes, please. To listen to the Dems, love is in the wings. There's healing in the wind. And the wind that's blowing the hardest is the wind in our hearts and memories of all those wonderful years of the Obama-Biden days when we were all in this together. Folks, if that's the way you feel, then forget about the facts. They're not worth discussing because they won't change any Democrat minds or hearts, for that matter. In 1992, Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her 40th anniversary on the throne. She called that year Annus Horribilis, or that horrible year, for all the trials the the royals went through. She said, quote, 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure, close quote. And while that may have been a carefully worded statement, it was unusual for a queen to make, especially one who went through the London Blitz a half century earlier. The same can be said of 2020, a year that started off for many of us, replete with high hopes for an economic turnaround and the prospect of a new resurgence of national pride and confidence with a president who understands us. These past six months have been the first act of our own Annus Horribilis as the political divisions that were boiling over on America's stove for years became even more intense as our our economy tanked and our death rate from the insidious virus undercut our ability to live normal lives. Months of forced exile in our homes exacerbated our suicide rate, spiked personal and property crime, and unleashed a torrent of youth violence against American institutions and history. Years of left-wing America hatred, pushed by ideologues in our universities, along with various anti-capitalist and anti-white groups, served to ignite a gushing jet of highly flammable gas that exploded in protests on our once-safe streets. Folks, we're in serious trouble. 
we're teetering on the brink of a total social and cultural meltdown. The gap between those who think and those who feel has widened, and it's big enough to swallow us whole. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not going to save us. Neither will all the good but clueless people who honestly believe that we can talk our way out of our dilemma. Defunding our police departments may sound reasonable to those who are already protected by living in gated communities with security guards, but it doesn't do much for the rest of us. There have always been idealists, wishful thinkers, and innocents among us. Some come by it honestly, while others, like conservatives, have been taught to believe in what is possible by focusing on the here and now. People of privilege have never had to face stray bullets on their way home from school or had to move cautiously up a staircase in an inner-city rent-controlled building. They've never had to teach their children about not congregating near certain junkie-occupied playgrounds. We're two Americas, maybe more, but at least two. We've drifted too far from each other to think we can close that gap with mere words, warm sentiments, and a few speeches. The outcome of this presidential election will decide not only our short-term political future, but also our very survivability as a nation of free people. It's that consequential. We have a choice. Do we put our faith in faith, or do we use our faith to strengthen us while we take decisive measures to ratchet down the violence so that we might buy a little breathing room to discuss the next steps? It's that critical. Personally, I don't care if Donald Trump tweets or cracks jokes about his opponents. I don't care about his outlandish statements or his bravado. I don't care if he's overweight, has swept over orange-colored hair, or his ties are too long. What I do care about is that he loves America and is willing to go up against the conventional wisdom to make the tough decisions that will keep us strong and on the right economic path. I care that he wants a smaller, more efficient government and that he wants strong borders. I care that he wants to protect life, all life, whether it's black or white or not yet born. I care that he wants opportunity for Americans and not a bottomless pit of handouts. I care that he sees the world as the dangerous place it is, but also sees its potential. I care that he values straight talk after lo- over lofty rhetoric and promises kept versus promises squandered. I care that he regards the nuclear family as the bedrock of our community and religion as one of the key pillars of our society rather than the opiate of the masses. I care that he understands the importance of our Constitution and our Bill of Rights to our foundation of self-governance, and I care that he is willing to suffer unending criticism from self-righteous and self-serving politicians whose only goal is to achieve power for power's sake. I care enough about these things to risk personal criticism from the loud voices on the left. And I ask that you find the courage to do the same. If we do not stand together as conservatives now, there is a danger, and a real danger, that there will be no place left to stand later, after November 3rd. We cannot risk a loss at this point, because it won't be a simple loss for one political party or one man in the White House. It will be a loss for the entire country. I have an idea that could help. I call it the plus one push. Let me explain. Look around you and find one person who may be sitting on the fence and who is in, da- in doubt about voting. Work with that person. Gain his or her trust. Talk with them about the dangers we face 
should Donald Trump not be reelected. Use logic and facts and the power of your persuasiveness. We cannot afford to let this one person stay home on election day. If they need a ride to the polling place, offer to drive them. If they need assistance in requesting an absentee ballot, help them get it. The plus one push could get us the votes we need in November. Well, that's about all the time I have for today. A half hour goes pretty quickly. I want to leave you with some words of encouragement. Remember that your voice counts. Your opinion matters and your vote is essential. You must stand up for what you believe in and not be bullied by the left. Do not let them set the agenda, push you into a corner, or marginalize you. The upcoming election is a referendum on our values. It's an opportunity and a responsibility. As I said earlier, if you'd like to be put on my mailing list to get an early morning email with a dozen political stories of interest of the day, just go to my website, www.projectpushback.com, and send me your contact information. Remember that you have the power to change thoughts, ideas, and actions. Be sure to tune in the same time next week for the Project Pushback Half Hour. And please remember to keep your dial firmly fixed on KIVA AM 1600 for the absolute best in conservative talk radio. So long for now.